Well, Lord, we tried. We've tried to tell you all the different titles that you are, and yet you're so much more. (laughs) Your name is wonderful. You're the mighty king. You're the master of everything. You're the almighty God. You're the prince of peace. You're the beginning. You're the end. And yet, Lord, we fall significantly short of who you really are. I pray with our hearts today, God, that we would, with the best that we possibly can, declare all that we know that you are. Would you come near to us? Would your spirit speak to us? May we not walk from this place tonight having not known that we've met with the risen King Jesus. We're convinced that your spirit still speaks, that the word is living and active, and that it won't turn back void. And so, God, I entrust this word to you. Thank for each person that's here tonight. May your name be glorified. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Jonah, chapter 4. Congratulations, you made it. You have survived. Well, you haven't yet. You haven't heard me. So I guess we have a few more minutes. I came a little more prepared tonight. Uh, I've got a box of tissues and an entire bottle of water, hoping that... uh, Hopefully I won't have the sniffles as bad as I did last night. I apologize. And then I got in my car last night and looked at what time it was. Man, I owe you an apology. I had a serious case of diarrhea of the mouth last night. And I went on and on and on and on. My goodness, I am so sorry. I will be much better about that tonight. I think. I think. <laughs> Again, it's, I'm blaming you all. There's no clock in here. I had no idea what time it was. There was no, no idea. <laughs> Jonah chapter 4, starting in verse 1. This is right after uh, God changes his mind. Decides he's not going to destroy the fish slappers, the Ninevites. Verse 1 in chapter 4. But Jonah thought this was utterly wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord. Come on, Lord! Wasn't this precisely my point when I was back in my own land? This is why I fled to Tarshish earlier. (laughs) I know you are a merciful and compassionate God, very patient, full of faithful love, and willing not to destroy. At this point, Lord, you may as well take my life from me because it would be better for me to die than to live. The Lord responded, Is your anger a good thing? But Jonah went out from the city and sat down east of the city. There he made himself a hut and sat underneath it in the shade to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a shrub, and it grew up over Jonah, (coughs) providing shade for his head and saving him from his misery. Jonah was very happy about the shrub, but God provided a worm the next day at dawn, and it attacked the shrub so that it died. Then as the sun rose, God provided a dry east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint. He begged that he might die, saying, It's better for me to die than to live. God said to Jonah, Is your anger about the shrub a good thing? Jonah said, Yes, my anger is good, even to the point of death. But the Lord said, You pitied the shrub for which you didn't work and which you didn't raise. It grew in a night and perished in a night. Yet for my part, can't I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 people who can't tell their right hand from their left and also many animals? Oh my. Fasten your seatbelts, friends. You ever lost utter control because of your temper? (laughs) To the point where as soon as you settled down, you realized you started making the list of all of the people that were affected by that anger? I am a walking sermon illustration for this particular topic. Um, More often than not, if I tend to get myself in trouble, it's usually because of my mouth both in the pulpit, in my marriage, as a parent. But sometimes there are situations in in our lives that (coughs) are so stressful 
And that anger from maybe a conglomeration of situations or things rise up within us till we reach a boiling point. I, my son is a, a sports junkie like myself. Uh, we both just love sports. He loves stats. Um, and we, he was the first one to tell me about the, the, the death of Kobe uh, the other day. But he loves to play all sports. He's a I don't know how the kid hits a baseball and pitches with one eye. I don't know how he does it with no depth perception, but he does. He's a great basketball player. He's a phenomenal soccer player. But this fall, during soccer season, I've been raising my son over and over and over again with one complete message. The people in the game are always more important than the outcome. From the referees to the players on both sides, to the coaches, all of those people are more important than the outcome. As a young child, this was a hard thing for me to grasp as a really competitive individual. But I wanted to raise my son with this reality that as he grows, that I want him to learn what it means to be a follower of Jesus when he plays sports. And this is a really hard thing when you're really competitive. Well, at one of his soccer games this year, um, we showed up to the game, and <coughs> for those of you that don't know, typically there's three referees in a soccer game. There's one that's in the middle of the field, and then there's two on the sidelines. Well, in this particular game, only two showed up. And so on one sideline for the entire game, this happens to be the side where all of the parents are, there's no official. And so the kid who was the head referee was probably about 17 years old. So I knew from the get-go that I was going to have to be extra careful on the calls that I knew he was probably going to miss on the side in which the parents happened to be. And sure enough, in the, as you would expect, in the first half, a few of those calls that he made, he couldn't see, he, he gave the best estimate. And I did a pretty good job, I will say. I, I was pretty good. But as the game got more and more competitive, um, Somebody, some parent on the sideline who was wearing bright red just kept getting a little bit louder. And as it got a little bit more competitive, for those of you that maybe have had kids who played sports, when it's your kid and your kid is affected by a particular play, you're a little more passionate about it. Sure enough, about <coughs> towards the, latter, the beginning of the second half, he had, the referee had called an offsides call, which basically meant that the player was out of position and had an unfair advantage. The first one I thought he missed, and I kind of gave the, ah, a little bit. Well, it, we, our team had a breakaway play, and my son happened to be leading the pack. And so my son had a breakaway play, and the ball was fed to him, and he started to make a move towards the goal, and the whistle blew, and they called him offsides. He was clearly not offsides. I'm the parent. I know. I was right. So out of the intensity of the game and the heat of the moment, I is, I'm wearing bright red. All of these parents that are there know what I do for a living. I just shout, No! Like just in the reaction and the passion and the heat of the moment, I yelled, no! And the, and the, and the, the referee, the 17-year-old kid, froze. And he turned to the direction of the parents and he said this, I'm doing the best that I can! Uh-oh. And so I very quickly, out loud, said, you're right, I'm sorry, I, I just got caught up in the game. I'm sorry, I'll be quiet. And so I knew that every parent at that point, number one, they know what I do for a living. My actions indic are indicative of my witness, right? Conviction of the Holy Spirit was almost instantaneous. And I thought to myself, you've got to make this right. You've got to make it right. And so the second half, I did. I kept my mouth shut. I did. I was a good boy because I'd been a bad boy. But after the game was over, I decided I was going to approach the referee and apologize for what I'd said. I, needed, I knew in my heart I needed to make it right. And so, as the game was over, it ended in a 1-1 tie. Shouldn't have been, but it did. And the referee, after the end of the game, um, 
the coaches were addressing their teams, the referee was walking off the field. And, and so I, I just immediately was like, well, I'll just go and apologize to him. So I start walking out towards him. Now, you can imagine what this looks like to other parents, right? When, a, when an intense game and you know somebody's yelled immediately after the game starts walking towards the referee, they're all thinking that that parent is about to let this kid have it, right? That's, that's the setup of the situation. And so... As I walk, I got about halfway from the parents to where he was, and he stops and wants to address all of the parents. So now I'm stuck in the middle. And he just said, excuse me, parents. And I froze, and I was like, uh. (laughs) So now everybody sees me walking towards him, and he says, I just wanted to tell you, I'm so sorry that our third referee did not show up. I'm pretty sure I missed some calls, but thanks for being patient with me. And now I'm like, what do I do? <laughs> so I just immediately walked over and I said, hey, man, I, I've been in your shoes before. I've been lit up by parents. I just want to tell you how sorry I am for what I did. I'm the one that yelled at you on that one offsides call. And I need to tell you how sorry I am for it. I said, I won't, I won't do that again. Because what you did, you gave your time and you did the best you could. And I just want to say thank you. And he froze and he looked at me like he was stunned. Like, he's just shocked that this was what came out of my mouth. And all he said to me was, thank you for apologizing. Because, and I've, I've, I've prayed for this kid, because what, honestly, what typically happens in situations like that, especially if you're in high school, it's such a discouraging situation that you quit and you don't do it anymore. And we need people, all people, to kind of actively be a part of the situation. I only tell that story immediately because I, <laughs> I think of Jonah when I think of my sign light outburst. He's had enough. He's livid, isn't he? We find out in chapter 4 why Jonah was running, don't we? We find out right here at the very beginning. He is furious at what has just taken place in Nineveh by the repentance of all of the people. We talked about this last night. Prophets typically would go take a message to the Lord and the people would not would respond negatively to that prophet and usually it cost the prophet his or her life. But in this particular story, the reverse completely happens. He ho-hums, he sort of says the message, the entire city repents. The complete opposite happens. You would think that Jonah the prophet would be celebrating and thrilled about this. He is furious. He's furious about it. Which says something immediately (laughs) about the heart of Jonah. We even talked about this a couple of days ago, that sometimes we have to confess that deep down within our hearts, when we look at people who aren't living the way that they should, we kind of have this deep part of us that sort of longs to see them blow it and get what they deserve. This was sort of Jonah's, the undercurrent of Jonah's heart here. And in the midst of his anger, what does he do? He actually, it says he prays. Kind of. It says that he prayed to the Lord. His prayer, I would sum up, was nothing more than a massive complaint. I knew you would do this, Lord. The only reason I'm here is you did exactly what I knew that you would do. I love the words. He's even given him all of these titles. This is exactly why I was going to Tarshish, Lord. I knew that you're merciful and compassionate. You're patient. You're full of faithful love and willing not to destroy. That's who you are, God, and I knew you would do this. And he's throwing a fit about it in the middle of the prayer. Like he is just letting the Lord have it. Can I just tell you that if God, if we have a God who can't handle our anger, we need a new God. God can handle our emotions. God can handle the raw realities of our emotions. When my son was battling at the deepest point of his illness, I can tell you that I did not have words to pray. More often than not, I was speechless because I just did not know. I, did, I didn't even know how to fight for my son in prayer. I was so exhausted. I was so spiritually tired. I had to rely on the people of God who were lifting up our family to support us in that battle. 
I did. I needed, I needed the body of Christ. And oftentimes in our raw emotion that we experience, that God can actually handle our emotion. That's good news, friends. <laughs> God can handle these words, probably said very aggressively by Jonah. God can handle that. If we have a God who does, cannot handle our emotions, we need a new God. But friends, we don't. He can handle it. So what are, it's, sometimes it's a, a sacrifice or an offering that we bring when we can be honest with how we actually feel. And then it says, the Lord does not reply to Jonah's prayer. What's he do? He asks a question, doesn't he? He asks a question. He's basically trying to help Jonah understand that although you know me, Jonah, your heart does not resonate with mine. We talked about how sometimes God can actually use us in spite of ourselves right? Sometimes. God can use anybody for his purposes, and sometimes God uses us in spite of ourselves, and here God uses Jonah in spite of himself. Jonah knows God, but Jonah does not resonate with the heart of God, which is an interesting place for us to maybe pause a little bit. (laughs) How often do we, we we display and discover as the story goes on that Jonah wasn't all that interested in what God was going to do. Jonah was interested in what Jonah was interested in having a God who would do what Jonah wants. <laughs> he was really he wasn't necessarily interested in what God was going to do. He was interested in what what Jonah wanted. And if we're not careful, sometimes we do that with God, don't we? We sort of want to have a God who sort of fits in on our terms. Or sometimes we have a a vending machine type God. That when life gets a little bit chaotic, we can insert our couple of prayers into the vending machine and, and enter B7 and hopefully get the answer that we want. I have a close colleague friend who says this, if we're not careful, sometimes we treat Jesus like a spiritual condiment. And what we do is we actually take, we take our life and we live our life and we look at God and we, we sort of sprinkle God into our life rather than doing the complete opposite. Recognizing that there's a story that God is writing, and we're asking, where do we fit into God's story? Not the other way around. Are you with me on that? He says, we're not called to treat God like a spiritual condiment that we can just sprinkle in on the life that we're living. It's, what is God up to? What is God doing? What is the story that God wants to unleash through his people? And we ask the question, where do we fit into that story? That's a powerful reminder for us. That's what Jonah was doing. He was sort of treating God as his expectations. Sometimes we, the, the place where faith begins to kick in for us is this, is that I'm sure glad I don't know everything there is to know about God. If we, if, if we knew everything there was to know about God, guess what? We wouldn't need God. We would be our own God. <laughs> this is where faith kind of kicks in in our journey, <laughs> There's things about God that we just will never know. And in the scriptures, you can see stories like that. I mean, you could read the story of Ishmael and Isaac. God just wasn't going to choose Ishmael, right? God can do what God wants. Guess why? Because he's God. (laughs) And there are things that God does in our lives that I don't fully understand. But each of those situations are invitations for us to trust in what God is up to. Because each of our stories and situations are different. But each of our lives, is in, as we experience Christ and experience his love for us, are invitations to live into his story in the world. And for those of us who have been filled with his spirit, it's not our agenda and asking God to fit into it. It's always been God's story and we're invited to live into that. There's a difference. There's a difference. So here in the midst of Jonah's anger, he's... God asks, is, this a, is your anger a good thing? So what does Jonah do? I'm going to take my ball and go home. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go walking. And it says he left the city. He went to the outskirts of the city, almost like he was, 
kind of hoping that God would just blow the whole thing up. Because deep down, if we're honest, Jonah was kind of hoping for that. Those evil Gentile people. In some ways, what's happened here is this is an invasion on the Israelite story. <laughs> Can I also remind us, though, the character and heart of God is always about redeeming humanity. So what, what started as a, a potential destruction for all of Nineveh turned into a full repentance of an entire city. A revival has broken out in Nineveh. People's lives are being transformed by the Almighty. And you would, as followers of Jesus, we would celebrate that. But Jonah does not. He takes his ball and he goes home. Well, not really. He takes his ball and he goes a-walking. And he sets up outside, it says he sets up outside the city. And now we get into even deeper selfishness of Noah, or Jonah, don't we? He builds himself a little place for some shade, and it says he's happy about it. And then the next day a little shrub grows, and it keeps him cool, and he's happy about it. And then he di it dies, and he's furious about it. And now he wants to die again. You know, this is, all of a sudden, this whole narrative just turned into about Jonah and Jonah's selfishness, doesn't it? I'm sure glad we're not Jonah's, right? <laughs> it could be tough. While God was doing his transforming work, Jonah removed himself from it. When God didn't do what Jonah expected on Jonah's terms, we recognize in the story how Jonah missed it. John has, Jonah has not yet learned that immortal souls of people are the most precious thing in the universe to God. <laughs> Think about this. Every single human being, God would celebrate at bringing those people home. Every single one of them. Every colleague you don't get along with, all the evil people doing evil things, God would celebrate at the redemption of their lives and would bring them home. Sometimes we forget that, don't we? <laughs> we sort of look and we label people based upon whether we determine whether or not they're worthy. Worthy. <laughs> Can I remind us that none of us were worthy of redemption? <laughs> it's because of what took place on the cross, because of Jesus, that we've been brought in. That's good news for us. It's a celebration for us. If God shows mercy to his enemies, there are serious implications for God's people. If God has shown his mercy to his perceived enemies... And they then repent. That is implications for us. We're left with the question, then who are our enemies? Think about this. The God of great mercy, who these people were perceived as enemies of God, has granted them mercy. They have repented. They've turned the direction of their lives to the way of God. We all should be shouting amen. But in the midst of that, God has shown mercy to his enemies. <laughs> and because that is the kind of God we serve, we're left with the question, then who are our enemies? <laughs> we have none if the redeeming work of God has been made available to everybody. It says the Lord provided the shrub, and it says that that shrub provided shade for his head and saving him, in my translation, from his misery. The Hebrew word for misery there is actually, the Hebrew word is wickedness. So let me uh, read it in that translation. Then the Lord God provided a shrub, and it grew up over Jonah, providing shade for his head and saving him from his wickedness. That's the exact same word that's actually used in other places in Jonah. It's the exact same Hebrew word. So the writer really wants us to understand how he actually is perceiving what's taking place with Jonah. The way in which he was, is responding here has a wicked tone, overtone to it. I don't like that word. It sort of changes it for me a little bit. 
The Christian who loses his taste for what God is doing must look to see who as well as what is dulling our palate. You like to eat? You like flavored food? Some of you have your eaters. I'm not much of an eater, but when I meet somebody who loves food, they can just talk about, oh, my palate craves this and my palate craves that. What the, this particular scholar was saying is that the Christian who loses his taste for what God is doing must look to see who and what, as well as what is dulling his or her palate, spiritual palate. You, have you lost, the, have you lost the, that spirit that brings you alive? What is it about following Jesus that just makes you alive? I think if we're not careful, sometimes we just sort of get into sort of the, we plateau and we just sort of hover here and we're okay with it. And God is always inviting us to something more intimate, something more real, something more passionate, because that's how his spirit operates. He loves for his people to be passionate about him. We are not a people who've been called to just sort of show up at church and and check off our box. Let me ask you this. If this building burned to the ground tonight, where would the Broadway Church of the Nazarene be? Wherever you are. (laughs) It'll be wherever you are. The church will not die if the building burns because we are the church. Tomorrow, the church will go where you go because the Spirit lives in you. That passion is meant to go and be an example wherever you are about that transforming work of God. Jonah's missed it here. There should be fireworks flying all over Nineveh right now. Jonah should be really upset at the party going on because he's missed it. He's completely lost. His heart doesn't resonate with the ways of God, and yet God has used Jonah in spite of himself to bring about the redemption. I don't want to be the kind of person that God just uses for his purposes and I miss out. I want to be a part of the party. I hope you do too. This is good news for us. We are invited into this reality. The seats that are empty tonight should be filled up because we as the people of God are just lights, passionate, shining wherever we are because of what Christ has done for us. His spirit that lives in you and me is calling us forward. We're called to go. We've never been called to take in the information. We've been called to go and live it. You go read the book of James tonight and then be all kinds of fired up. (laughs) He who has faith without works is what? It's dead. We were called to be a part of a dead church. Our, Our journeys with Christ weren't called to be empty and dead. We were called to be filled with his spirit and embody that wherever we go. As you leave from this place, you and I are the church. You and I get to be a part of this. We get to be a part of it. It's part of our job description as followers of Jesus. I'm just getting warmed up. Guess who gets the last word in this story? God does. He just lets Jonah go on and on and on and on. Jonah, is your anger warranted? Yes! Yes, it is! I'm mad! Okay. But in the midst of the emotion, who gets the last word? God does. Jonah knew that serving the true and living God and allowing himself to be transformed into his image was a costly way for him to walk. Think about this. When we choose to follow Jesus, it costs us something. It costs us our lives, right? We become a new creation. We enter into this journey as the body of Christ. Jonah actually knew to be utilized and transformed by God meant that Jonah couldn't walk the way that Jonah wanted to walk. Think about that. You're giving up your own way in which you desire to live, to walk in the ways of God. 
And, Jonah, and God begins to just ask, ask all kinds of questions here. You pitied the shrub for which you didn't work, in which you didn't raise. It grew in a night and perished in a night. Yet for my part, can't I pity Nineveh, that great city? I'm God. Can't I have pity and show mercy to whomever I desire? Who are you, Jonah? There's all these people, and they don't know they're left from their right. I'm God. Can I not do what I want? Can I not do what I want? You know, how, what's that have to do with us? I'm glad you asked. <clears throat> we all, as, as individuals, we all have what I call um, our mental models. This is what I mean by that. We all have very specific mental models on how we see the world is supposed to operate or situations. I'll give you an example. If you worship in this particular church on a Sunday morning, you have a mental model about what the order of worship is supposed to be without looking at it, don't you? Right? If you attend this church, you could come in and sit down and you could probably write out pretty closely what the order of worship is going to be, right? That is a mental model. You have a mental model about what a Sunday morning worship service here is supposed to look like. Now, if this particular Sunday you showed up and there was an opening prayer and you immediately took the offering, followed immediately right after that by the sermon, some of you would be very upset about that. And your response would be something like, that's not how we do that. That is not how we do that and you know it. Because you, there's tension around the corner when your mental model gets messed with, doesn't it? Can I get an amen in the house? It's okay, yes. Let me give you other mental models. We all have mental models for what marriage is supposed to look like. When you got married, well, there's a, a groan or a, a, a celebration. I, anyway, uh, but in the whatever home that you were raised in, you saw, if you were raised by both parents in your home, you saw how your parents lived, which set a mental model for who was responsible for what. So when you got married, you were joined with somebody who has probably a different mental model and experience for who does what. You want to watch marriage get all kinds of tense? Try and figure out whose job it is to do the laundry. Who does the cooking? Who pays the bills? Some of you are like nudging your neighbor right now. You remember that fight, honey? <laughs> and when a mental, <laughs> and when a mental, there is marriage counseling available after this service tonight. I will be available. Um, but when your mental, when our mental models get messed with, it it conflict is around the corner, isn't it? Almost always, conflict is around the corner. It happens in your workplace. Uh, would you have a pastor who you have a mental model about what a pastor is supposed to do and what their schedule is supposed to look like? When your pastor does not live that schedule that you expect, you don't like it. And some of you are happy to share your opinion about that. Right? We all have mental models in all areas of our lives. When it comes to raising the kids, same thing. When your mental model of what a grandparent is supposed to be to their kids, to your, their grandkids, do you have a mental model about what that looks like? We have mental models about how we see things are supposed to operate. I think one of the greatest things that has imprisoned our churches today is that we've stopped walking and stopped following in the ways of the Spirit when our mental models have been messed with on how God is supposed to operate. Right? I think God should move this way, and God didn't. And then you don't know what to do with that. And so our, our mental models are always kind of being messed with a little bit. And actually, I would say that's probably a good thing. You ever felt deep conviction on oftentimes you living your life in a particular way and then the Spirit takes over and invites you to follow in His footsteps and all of a sudden your mental model about how you're supposed to live <laughs> has been shifted. And now you're invited to live and embody a whole different way of living. The same is true when we gave our lives to Jesus. I like to live my life in this particular way. And then God took hold of my life. And now I've been wrestling and fighting with trying to become more like Jesus. But my mouth keeps getting me in trouble. But we have mental models, don't we, about everything. So when I look at this text, I'm left with the kind of questions like this. What does this have to do with today? 
What does it have to do with how we've been invited and called to live as the people of God and maybe this group of people who, who worships in this church community? I have a couple of thoughts. You might be surprised. What unites brothers and sisters in Christ will have to become more important than what divides us. What unifies us as the body of Christ is going to have to be more important than what divides us. The church will have to be driven by an eschatology of love, or of, of hope and love. I know some of you grew up in the traditions where you came, to, you came to Christ because somebody who got stood up in front and talked about, you better get it right or there's going to be, there's going to be hell to pay, literally. And you came to Christ under a preacher like that. I give praise and thanks to God for that and the ministry of those folks. But by and large, many people who don't yet follow Jesus are looking for hope. And when they show up in our churches and in our worship services and they walk out feeling worse about themselves than when they walked in, I'm left with this question. Are we living an eschatology of hope? Or are we trying to convict people to sort of literally scare the hell out of them? Literally. We've been called to an eschatology of hope. What does it mean for us to be the church? Now our mental models for what it means to be the church, what would it look like? For us to have an eschatology of hope, where people are coming in, and we live in a post-Christian world today. You know this, right? There are literally people who don't, all they know about the name of Jesus is that he's a cuss word. You know this, right? If you come to Gig Harbor, Washington today, my church that I pastor was built in 1913. There's nothing sexy about my church building on the outside. Nothing. But do you remember the day way back when when people, when they would move to a different community, would drive by the church and one of the first things they would do is they would look for a church to worship and join. Those days are gone. People aren't driving by my church anymore going, wow, I wonder what goes on there on Sunday. We should check that out. When was the last time you drove by the Elks Lodge and asked the same question? Have you ever driven by the Elks Lodge and gone, wow, I wonder what goes on there. I should go check that out. We don't do that anymore, do we? We're so busy and caught up with our world. So in eschatology of hope, perhaps the future of the church might mean that because the gospel message doesn't change, how we go about sharing that gospel message just might have to change. We are a people that are called to go. Because the days when we just expected everybody to come, they're gone. So we might have to think about what it means to, for us to be the church in the future. The church must learn anew what it means to take up our cross and follow Christ. We might have to learn that again. <laughs> right? I know I'm preaching about some hard stuff tonight. I know that. But that's what you paid me to do. So, sorry, not sorry. But I've been, as I've been praying for you the last couple of days, I've been praying about asking God to help me understand what's the, what's the personality of this church community? What's, where's their heart in all of this? What's, and hopefully something I'm saying is really resonating with, with you all tonight because I, I don't want the church to die, but the church needs the people of God to rise up and rethink unified with the purpose and goodness of the gospel and think maybe again, what does it mean for us to be the church in this community? Because it just might change. I'll tell you, I'm wrestling with this in my church community. I'll tell you right now, I'm messing, I'm messing with one of those mental models that's going to, I might be looking for a job soon. We'll just might put it that way. The senior, yeah, you got an opening here, I hear. That's like, <laughs> rumors out. Where's the search committee? Let's get this going. <laughs> VBS has been one of those things that is a mental model that our church does every year. It's been a mental model. I'm asking really hard questions like this. Why are we still doing this? And the typical response I get is because, well, we've always had VBS. Why? We want kids to hear about us. Well, the last three years, I've been evaluating who's been coming to our VBS. Let me tell you who shows up to my VBS. Our church kids and the church kids from other churches in our community. 
usually that's, that's who comes. And so I've looked and I'm asking the question. I'm asking several volunteers to give significant amount of volunteer hours to pour their energy into something that I'm not convinced is the best way for us to be the church in Gig Harbor. My wife is the children's pastor. <laughs> Crucify him. But we're asking these hard questions because we're recognizing that for us to be the church and to be an effective church for the community around us, we're going to have to rethink what it means for us to be the church in our community and what it means to actually go rather than expecting everyone to come. One of the ways in which we're thinking and dreaming about that is learning to be a community of presence, a church community of presence in our community. Let me tell you what that looks like for us. It's meant for us is that I'm spending a lot more time not in my office. I currently volunteer two times a week at a local middle school because I've heard there's a lot of kids in middle school that come from really broken situations who want to know that their name is being called and have a sense of belonging, an adult who cares about them. So it's meant that I've, I'm actually giving part of my time now to the local middle school. I actually coach a Little League baseball team. And the reason I do that, partly is because I love the sport, but secondly, I want to get to know people in my community. Do you know that I could spend 40 hours a week sitting in my office and never have an encounter with somebody who doesn't know Jesus? That is not where my calling has called me to go. It's called me to go to be with people. In the last five years, through just volunteering in our local Little League, we have 15 people that have started coming to our church, two of them who have been diagnosed with cancer. And part of the reason, when they got their diagnosis, they called me. And they said, my life has just been completely uprooted by this phone call, and I want to know, what am I supposed to do about it? I'm so thrilled that in their moment of tragedy, they knew they had a relationship with me to call me. I am not the hero of this story. God is the hero of this story. Because he's helping our church community to reimagine what it means for us to be the people of God in our community. It means that I have several of my staff showing up at kids' recitals and kids' sporting events. It means I have elderly couples that are inviting our young, our young couple families who are new into parenting for a meal to just merely get to know one another. Do you know that it's possible that you could actually be a part of this church for a really long time and not know anybody intimately in a relationship? We're called to be the body of Christ together. We're called to be the body. Can I tell you the craziest thing I did when I was Pasadena? Good, because I'm going to tell you. This revolutionized our church. When we started talking about becoming an intergenerational church community, we got excited about what that could look like. And I'll tell you, I tried some things and they failed miserably. I will tell you as a pastor, I am not a try, afraid to try something and fail. Failure does not define me. Failure allows me to grow and become somebody better. Think about that. We can't be a people or a church that's afraid to try something. And if it doesn't work, you go, okay, it doesn't work. Let's try something else. I did that at Pasadena with some great colleagues that allowed me to try stuff and it failed. One thing that worked was this. I should tell you this story tomorrow, but I'll tell you tonight. Our senior adult pastor at Pasadena First was a guy named Ridge Ireland. Rich had been a pastor for a long time, but he had been at Pasadena First for many, many years. He had been the executive pastor, and then he was kind of head of finances at the church. And now he was the senior adults pastor. Well, when we started talking about becoming an intergenerational community, I said, I don't want to be a multi-generational community. There's too many of us of too many different ages who are worshiping here, and we don't know each other, and it's not okay. That is not the church. So after staff meeting one day, Rich comes to me, and he walks in, and he goes, Keegs, um... I'm tired of taking old people on trips. Okay, Rich, I hear you, man. Like, thanks for that. And he's like, I'm tired of taking old people on trips. I'm tired of saying our involvement in the youth is just that we'll pray and give money to it. He goes, it's not okay. That's not the church. I said, okay, Rich. He goes, I have an idea. What do you got, Rich? He says, what if we do a senior-to-senior trip? What are you talking about? He goes, let's take all the high school students and the senior adults on a weekend away together. And I was like, 
<laughs> what? He goes, no, I'm serious. So what are you talking about? Have you already thought of something? He's like, great, glad you asked. I've already got this idea. He goes, up in central California is a place called Manzanar. It's a World War II Japanese internment camp. Okay. He goes, you know Annie Sakamoto who worships here. Yeah, I know Annie. He said, she, when she was five years old during World War II, she was placed at Manzanar. I've already called her and asked if we took a trip with our high school kids, if she would be our tour guide. She already agreed to do it. I was like, what? Okay, let's do it. He goes, I don't need to change my entire calendar, but maybe we could change one event this year that could potentially revolutionize the relational disconnect that we have. I said, bud, I'm willing to try anything. Let's do it. So this was in like, uh, this was in like September, and we put the event on the calendar in March. In uh, the first week of October, the second week of October, Ridge was like, hey, you know how I do these trips? I go and I do the trip before everyone goes so we can kind of see what we're going to do. Let's go on a road trip. And I was like, okay. He goes, on Monday, we're going to take a road trip. I said, I'm in. On the Saturday night before we were supposed to go, Ridge had a massive stroke. And I was, I was really bummed about that. I, Ridge, is, Ridge is, oh man, I could weep for days talking about Ridge in my life. But what, Subsequently, seven days later, almost to the exact minute, Ridge had another massive stroke. And it became pretty obvious pretty quickly that Ridge was not going to recover from this. And I was so, I was devastated by it. Over the course of the next couple of months, we watched Ridge's life just deteriorate. And right after the Christmas that year, he, he passed away. Well, our executive pastor at the time, um, he went to Ridge's council <clears throat> his community that he had that helped support his ministry. And he, they said, you know, in the midst of our grief for Ridge, I think we should at least try and put a few events on the calendar to kind of keep things going. And that council said, we're going to Manzanar. That was Ridge's dream. Ridge has been talking about investing in our youth, not just with money and prayer, but actually relationally. We're going to Manzanar. So my executive pastor shows up and he's like, what do you think? You think we can pull this off? I'm like, if this was Ridge's dream, we're doing this. Sure enough, we got a 50-passenger seat bus and had 25 senior adults and 25 high school kids sign up to go. <laughs> I literally, like, manipulated my teenagers. This is what I said. We're going on a trip with a bunch of older folks, and there was this, like, oh. I said, let me just do, just do this one trip this one time. If it's terrible, we'll never do it again. I had known enough research knowing that if we did it well, it was going to work, so I already won, but... I said, if we do this and it tanks, we won't ever do it again. But if it works, we're going to think about what this actually means for what it could mean for our church community. So we get on the bus, and they did exactly what you think they would do. All the older folks sat in the front, all the kids sat in the back, and everyone was perfectly okay with that. It was like junior high youth group all over again, just by gender, except they were just by age. So about an hour into the road trip, I have a 17-year-old girl in my youth group who wanders up to where I'm sitting, and she says this, I kid you not, Keeks, what do I talk to these people about? Which is a valid question, right? If you don't hang out with people of an older generation very often, you want to find a common denominator. And this is what I said, Janelle, find a couple that's here and ask how they fell in love. They love to tell that story. She goes, I'll try it. So she made it really awkward and weird. Like she would step to the aisle and kind of like look to see if there was a couple together. And like, no. And then like look. And she finally found this couple that was together. And she said, hi, my name's Janelle. I've been sitting on the back of the bus with all the kids. I just want to ask you one question. Like, can you tell me how you fell in love? Both their faces lit up. George and Penny. George immediately dives into like, let me tell you about this sweet something, something I saw. This, And she's like, that's not how it went, George, and you know it. And they started, their faces lit up, and they started rehashing their story and where they met, where they fell in love. And the whole time, Janelle's drinking the Kool-Aid. She's like, oh, oh, that's so. She's loving this. It gets better. As soon as she finishes telling this story, She's, she's like, thank you so much for sharing that with me. I'm going to go back to the back and tell everyone about it. And she goes to step away, and George grabs her by the arm. He says, sweetheart, 
This is great. I just taught you something about my life. Now you teach me something about yours. What a great, great statement. She's like, she was so caught off guard. She said this, "Um, do you know what a selfie is? And George goes, I have no idea what you just called me. <laughs> that's what his, that's seriously what she's, he said. She's like, well, you take out your phone and you take a picture of yourself on the phone. He goes, why would I want to do that? <laughs> she's like, all the kids in the back right now are doing it. I can assure you, you should try. And he's like, fine, I'm game. So she took her phone out and do you see her face? Yeah. Just push that button right there. And he did, but he held it down. And she's like, you just took 97 photos of yourself, George. And they laughed and laughed and laughed about it. They just giggled the whole time. And she skipped on back to the back of the bus. And the two of them were just giggling. Well, wasn't that just so sweet? Ah, what a sweet young lady. It was so great. Gets better. We got all the way um, about an hour after this. We stopped at, you know, I don't want to be offensive, Whatever restaurant old people tend to eat at, whatever you pick your, just shout it out, here we go. We picked one of these restaurants that we knew all the older folks on the bus would love to eat. We made a reservation, but what happened was, since all the old folks were at the front of the bus, they shuffled off as fast as they could and ran into the restaurant. And I thought, oh no. But we didn't know they were up to something. They got in there and they sat in pairs and saved two seats for all of the teenagers at the booths where they sat. So when the kids started filing in, they were like, we need two right here. We need three to sit right here with us. Two more right here. If the kids just kind of like were stunned but filtered in and filled in all of the gaps. We didn't plan this. But over the next hour and a half, we listened to the things like, how much did milk cost when you were my age? And... What were the things that used to stress you out when you were a teenager? And tell me what it's like now to, and the conversation just was so fruitful and beautiful. We just, my executive pastor was with me. We just sat back and just were like, this is so good. Well, after the meal was over, you know what happens when conversation starts happening? They started mingling on the bus a little bit. So we drove the rest of the way that night to the hotel. We got up the next day. And they all were sitting now intermingled together on the bus. There was dialogue. There was this sort of buzz happening. You know what happens when you go on a road trip, right? Inside jokes, family, community happens. This was taking place. We got all the way to Manzanar. And when we got to certain points, there was some uneven ground all over where we were walking. And when we got off, I watched my high school kids walking and helping them make sure all of the ladies were walking on even ground to make sure that they got to be a part of it. They were all caring for one another. 